welcome to How Do You Engineer, your engineering podcast in space. space, space, space. <laughs> I'm a host, 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 Pierre Martin. <laughs> I'm a host, Abby Desjardins. <laughs> and I'm a host, Simon Whitmel. Uh, and this week, we are, uh, we're joined from all the way from the uh, Canadian Space Agency. Uh, Cam is coming to talk to us about uh, remote robotics and uh, what it's like to be in space while not really being in space. Is that right? Yep, that's right. And uh, first thing I'm going to tell you guys is there's no echoes in space. That's the first thing. Oh, <laughs> uh, Pete, we're getting messed up. See, this is this is why we have people on the show who know things, exactly. and then they call us <laughs> on our like crap that we're getting away with normally. <laughs> yeah, you would not have enjoyed the movie Gravity with me. It was difficult to watch. With me. <laughs> what if Sorry. you're in a large pressurized chamber in space? That's different. That's true. You could. <laughs> But, uh, you could, but I'm, I'm working with space robots, so I'm in the vacuum usually. <laughs> well, I'm in space right now, and yeah. I have an echo. Okay, <laughs> Pete, Pete's got a, Pete's got a giant gymnasium. He's built in space. I, no, I am on Spaceship Earth. Spaceship. <laughs> That's true. He's actually right. The planet is in space, uh, so I take it back. I have corrected. So, touche, sir. I mean, a large, large bubble of air around a large body of rock. Okay, <laughs> that's that's a good one. With that one. Um, so uh yeah, we're gonna talk about uh working working in space and what a what a day working in space for a robotic con- or what what is your job title? Well in Canada they were called uh mission controllers in uh, the NASA group that I'm also a member of is called uh the flight control team or the flight operations director. So I'm a international space station robotics flight controller. That's the term I prefer to use. That sounds so awesome. It does sound so awesome. Do you have an acronym? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Robo is the team name, actually, yeah, the, okay. the, uh, console, the console name and Johnson, which is the group that I'm part of, which is, uh, by code known as CX2, but nobody outside of the NASA community mm. would know that. We're called <laughs> Robo or Robotics, Robo. uh, so. I like nice. it. Neat. All right. So, uh, before we get talking about space. We were talking about remote control, and of course, that made me think of the fact that I still can't find my TV remote control. It's been missing for like two weeks, and uh, I have, so I always got to get up and walk over to the TV, and it's driving me nuts. So I want to think of how we could engineer a TV remote control, whether it's like the traditional remote control or some other way of controlling your TV, but maybe one that's not so easy to lose. I don't know. And maybe one that you can have access to more quickly than when your child is large enough to crawl or walk and can change the channel for you. Yeah. I've got a nephew that's like obsessed with remote controls. So if you've got one that works for your TV, it's constantly getting turned on and turned off. So their house (laughs) just doesn't have remote controls anymore. It's an interesting problem though, because uh, there's a lot of um, thought given to the user experience of remote control. Like there's a lot of, for instance, what I'm thinking about mostly is the Apple TV and how they changed their remote control on the latest Apple TV. And there was a large backlash. Because they thought it was neat to have things like touchscreens and haptics and stuff like that. And then the actual use case of having a remote and using it to change channels on your TV, it's a pain. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, that's the thing. Like, the thing I've noticed about most remote controls is they've got like 8,000 buttons and you need like four of them. Yeah. Like I, I, I've used, I don't even use the channel buttons because I don't use my TV for TV. So I really use, I use power and I use input. Mm-hmm. And that's really all I need. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, even if you use your remote for TV, but there's, you know, however many channels they have now, you're not going to be going up and up and up. Yeah. Like, to Usually you're just them. going yeah. to a particular thing. That you're you going watch. to exactly the channel yeah. you want. I mean, I only use Chromecast and Netflix, so I basically just use my remote control for volume and power. Oh, yeah. I do use volume. Okay. I take that back. 
So, so three things, yeah. power, yeah. input, and volume. And my assumption is, as per usual, we don't want to just go with conventional technological approaches like voice commands or things like that where you can say, hey, TV, volume up. Or- well, you could, but you got, you got to watch that like with voice commands that you, whatever you're watching on TV isn't then triggering your – like you, <laughs> yeah. you, you know we'll be, we'll be sitting here doing the podcast and all of a sudden your phone will go – and it's like, Google, I wasn't talking to you. Yeah, I know. So, I mean, it's anytime you've got voices coming out of speakers or whatever, voice control is going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I think if I if I understand the current remote control technology, it's basically just like it's an IR or serial. Bluetooth. Do the, are the like TV remote controls yeah. that are Bluetooth? Harmony remotes are Bluetooth. Yeah. Okay, but that's just like you're basically just taking the buttons that were on the TV and moving them elsewhere. Yeah. Okay. Well, when you say elsewhere, you, you guys are also forgetting the fact that some remote controls are now on iPhones or Android phones. I can use my phone to control my Western Digital remote or your. Yeah. other devices so yeah they're yeah. kind of getting away from it so i do find there is that delay sometimes and or the apple crash and then you have to restart whereas the old school hardcore remote is still i think fundamentally simpler to use unless as you said there's a million and one buttons or yeah. sub buttons yeah. and sub menus yeah and it's it's i mean the, the, you're sort of caught between having an app i mean smart tvs and whatnot where you can control it over the network would be handy because i think part of the problem with the like when you're controlling with your phone is that half the time they're using like an IR blaster on the phone to talk to your TV. And that's just not a normal use case for a phone. So mm-hmm. it's always like an afterthought hardware wise. Well, what if we double down on a previous theme being machine learning and we have your TV just turn on when you enter the room if it thinks that, that you're going to, or if you sit down on the couch. So it like recognizes your behavior in the room and is like, he's probably going to want to know I have the TV on. Oh. So the TV tunes on and is like, well, it's evening and his baby's gone to bed. So the volume probably has to get turned down. <laughs> and or like, it, there's a, there's, it seems like there's a lot of people in the room. Maybe it's a party. I should go to Spotify and turn the volume up. Like, it, Oh, and you could do, actually you could do, uh, like most, uh, the smart TVs have got a camera built into them. Yeah. So you could do, you could do face tracking. You could do eye tracking. You could even make your TV turn like the screen off and on, depending on anyone's whether anyone's bothering to look at it. Yeah. So the yeah. idea is you leverage something like IFTTT to set up a bunch of cues that your TV recognizes. Yeah. So if, if someone's in the room and they're looking at the TV, the TV will be on. If someone's in the room, but they're looking away. The screen might be off, but it'll still be sitting there like yeah. keeping an eye on stuff. Hmm. That could be kind of cool. That could be cool. Okay. So that works in, as insofar as getting – see, you want it to like guess what you want to do with it. What if it, what if it guesses wrong? I mean, changing channels obviously doesn't work. You can't be like, it's four o'clock. He probably wants to watch Game of Thrones, but I, you could, but I mean, it isn't necessarily as effective. I don't, I don't have TV. I don't, I'm, I'm not qualified for this discussion. <laughs> well, no, no, this, this is actually, all I do is use Netflix. This is, but no, this is, this is a good, uh, a good discussion because it's, it, this is what are TV remotes for now? Cause I don't, I don't, again, I'm the same way. I use Netflix, but, and I use like Spotify and I pull up some apps and like Chromecast, but I don't use, the television, the television functions. So most of what I use my remote control for, as I say, is just getting it, turning the TV on and telling it what input I want on the screen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I use my remote like traditionally on occasion to actually watch things on TV. Like from a cable box? <laughs> like or from, from a like, cable box. Yeah, oh man. Like old school. Abby is a user of television. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same what time, like there's, you know, six channels that I watch. Yeah. So maybe they could know what I want to watch. I mean, Cam is a good point. What, like volume is the crux of it because volume is ubiquitous. Everyone needs to control the volume. Mm-hmm. And that's going to have to be like if you're going to do machine learning, it's got to be like really – it would be an application of fuzzy because it will depend on the room volume. It will depend on who's listening. 
time of day. Like your TV would have to know who's in the room. How like, close you are to the TV. Yeah. A bunch of stuff. Yeah. And the difference between like you and like your kid. And like like different users are going to want it at different volumes for different things. But I mean, what's the times. first thing you do if the TV is too quiet? You say out loud, can you turn it up? Unless you're alone in the room. Okay. Norm- and then you're just crazy. Just like to the empty room. <laughs> it's really quiet in here. Um, I think you can do a lot with with machine learning, but I understand like it's well, it's 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 going to have some parts. Some you have to be able to overwrite. And then at that point, are you holding a device? Are you talking to a device? Are you signaling a device like Minority Report? Like what is the? Well, you could do you could do gestures. I mean, if the camera, if you've already got a camera on your TV and it's watching you in order to tell if you're in the room and looking at the TV, then like hand gestures for volume would be pretty easy. But here's the thing: like the Xbox does that. You can do gestures and you can talk to it with a, with a directional microphone, and people never use either of those functionalities. That just sounds really irritating. If I'm lying on the couch sick, trying to watch TV, and I have to like start fist pumping in the air and turn the volume <laughs> up, <laughs> it's not a thing I'm going to want to do. Although, if you were had if you were playing music over Spotify and it controlled the volume based on the amount of fist pumping going on, that would be awesome. <laughs> that could be cool. <laughs> well, what if you're dancing though? If you start dancing, it's gonna some problems with this. Yeah, <laughs> the volume starts going up and down in in, in time with the rhythm as everyone dances around. <laughs> so, what you guys are describing it makes me think about something. That one of the reasons I, for example, I have a number of devices, and I've heard about these systems where you can have one remote for all. I had tried those in the past, and I didn't like the fact that I'm losing some of the capabilities. And I actually am pretty happy with having two or three remotes for the different systems that I have hooked up to each other, but. I think what you guys are all describing are what I would say things that sound cool, but unless we have enough people using them, we're not going to refine them enough. And then that's where we're in all the issues. So mm-hmm. the old school remote's going to keep winning because it's so quote unquote reliable. And I say that yeah. in quotes because, uh, generally they work. They're, they're pretty vetted out. They've been, uh, they've been researched to, to the nth degree and they are, there are always improvements coming on them. But the basic fundamentals, like you said, channel changing, inputs, volume, those always work. And, um, I think that's what it is. You're laying out on the couch as you're describing and you don't want to be moving around too much. You just point the remote and there yeah, she goes. But you only got to move one finger. It's like the minimum amount of effort you could possibly need to activate. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, so until until we come to a, a device of the future, again, in big quotes, <laughs> um, we need something that's going to be easy to use, intuitive to use, and, and again, reliable. Because one of the things I hate about my, my smartphone I- interface is when it crashes, you're sitting there going, hey, is this thing crashed or is it just a delay? Because I'm using mine <laughs> over Wi-Fi. And it's a loss of time. I mean, it's it's frustrating. It's yeah. uh, it's something that you don't want to do. And I think the the way to sell to the public is to make it as easy and, and transparent as possible. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think it needs to be like it's the, the big question is why? Like you said, that we, got, we got the Xbox like a gesture yeah. control of that. Nobody's using it. Why? And there also needs to be a trade out. Like there has to be a return on the technology. Like we have a TV here that has a touchpad built into it purely because it's an expensive TV and they know that they can put touchpads in the remote to make it look cool. The touchpad serves no practical purpose. Mm-hmm. Four directional buttons would be much better and easier to use. Yeah. They're just like, well, touchpads are neat. Let's put one of those in the remote to make it cool. And like that that was the same argument this brought up with the Apple TV on one of the podcasts I listened to. Like the, fo- the directional arrows that were on the previous generation of that remote 
were far more functional and easier to use than a touchpad. They just put a touchpad in because touchpads are cool. Yeah. Okay. But uh, so, all right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to define the functional issue I have with TV remotes is I lose them. I was, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, why don't so, we just address Okay, so let's address that. So remote. you need duct tape. <laughs> Corded remotes. <laughs> duct tape. But don't, well, okay, because like originally TV remotes were, it was just a wire that went to your TV and it had a, a knob on it. Yeah. You, so, I mean, you could, but then cords are annoying. I mean, when I was a little kid growing up in Canada, my mom would attach my gloves to my jacket so that I wouldn't lose them on little strings. So I need like a TV watching jacket. Okay. All right. No, I'm good. You attach it to your couch. No, I'm going to have, no, I have, I have like a smoking jacket for when I'm watching TV <laughs> and it has the remote like attached to it. That, that solution works for me in every way. Or if you really want to be cool, you have it built into the sleeve. You just sew it into the sleeve of the jacket so you're like, you put it, I, I put it, put it on one of those, like, those, those spring loaded, uh, like scissor jack things. So you like, you <laughs> swing your arm out and the remote like flies out of your arm, like the sleeve and into no, your No, it's hand. like the power glove. Like it's, you can, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> your remote's just mounted to the back of your sleeve. Yeah. Oh no, it's, yeah, so it's like a pit boy or something. It's like yeah, attached, exactly. it's it built into the sleeve of the jacket. Cause then it's cool and practical. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Those words. Yes. I, I, I would yeah. buy, I would buy it purely for like the, the factor of like, yeah, this is my TV watching jacket. <laughs> and if anyone else wants to watch TV, screw them. Nope. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's gotta be one size fits all too. All right. No, okay, that's, yeah. How about a, how about, how about a remote robotic deployment system from the ceiling of your room? Because, you know, there's nothing in the ceiling but the lights. You can have these things hanging over there on retractable lanyards. Huh. That way, every time you're not using it, it just kind of pulls back over there. Anytime you need the remote, there it is. Just stick up your arm. But then how do you control the robot? Do you have a remote control for the robot that controls the remote control? Or do (laughs) you? That, that, that works. (laughs) You could have, you could either have the robot just be such that you can pull it down. Actually, you know what? Maybe I'm making this more complicated. Oh, you don't need a robot. You just need the lanyard. Just Just grab it. You need a lanyard and pull it down. (laughs) 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 See, that's the thing. Sometimes you have to over-engineer something and you make things way more complicated than they need to be. You need a bungee cord. Well, actually, or better, better than that one, of those like uh the spring-loaded um like the tool like they have them out of, out of the benches there they have tools on cables that have pull up into spring-loaded oh, yeah, 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 they, yeah. you pull the tools down from above at the workbench yeah, yeah. exactly it, that's it exactly would be what nice thinking. yeah if it could follow you from you know your couch to like your armchair that's over on the side if it oh could. you'd have like a rail on the ceiling oh, yeah. Like walk a track. With you. yeah and you just drag it along above you well it'd be nice if it followed you like that's cool we uh the company we worked for once developed a system that was a Cartesian robot on the ceiling that would follow you around based on like a little gimbal that would basically always stay above you. So you could, you can do stuff like that. Yeah. It'll bring, bring you the remote. It'll be always above you no matter where you are in yeah. the room. Yeah. I, that'd that be kind of cool. scare me. That would kind of scare <laughs> me at nighttime. <laughs> you walk into the room and it starts following you. It doubles as a kid's mobile if they're like laying on the floor. Just like <laughs> I don't know. Little red light comes on. I feel like it's Hal from like 2001. And Hello, Cameron. I see anything. you are in yeah. your armchair. May I interest you in a remote control? <laughs> yeah, that that would uh, be cool until it scares the crap out of me. <laughs> okay, I, I I think that's probably from an engineering point of view. The, you've got to, you have to install a track above your couch and your chair in the ceiling. And then there's, you've got a little doohickey that runs along the track that has a spring loaded cable that comes down and holds the remote. So you can pull the remote down from above, use it. Then you let it go and it goes back up to the ceiling. Yeah. 
No? I still think building the remote into something you already have in your room makes sense. Like, what if you just attach, like, you Velcro the remote to your couch? Or, like, I guess the problem is then you don't, you forget to, and then it never. I, I'm going to tear it off the couch, and then I will put it anywhere but the couch. I know, and the problem is, work. like, any, like, this is what I was thinking about. The problem is anytime you try to make something generic, like, universal, it's a pain in the ass. That's mm-hmm. why Harmony remotes don't work. That's why, like, most of the things, like, apps that Cam was talking about don't work is because as soon as you try to make something appeal to every TV, it doesn't work for most TVs. Yeah, no, I, I like I don't have too many remotes. That's not my problem. I have one remote, and I have no idea where it is. Okay, so I, I like this. I, yeah, I like the, the entry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that it, it breaks down if you're like Cam and you got four, five, or six remotes coming from the ceiling because then you're just like you're batting at them like a well, cat just, trying to find the well, one you, you just want. Just like pull down a bucket of remotes. <laughs> <laughs> but how badass would it be? Would if see, you, then I wouldn't put the remote back in the bucket and I'd lose it again. It's how, attached how by How cool string. would it be if you like walk into the room and you just put your hand up and it like basically it comes down into your hand? So it's just like you just grasp and it's there. There's like it, that, Sailor that, that, Moon. That's. <laughs> I, I I could go Don't with Sailor Moon. Okay, <laughs> that's not. I was like, thinking more Tony Stark, but you know, that's yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that that's an application of the of the the image sensing though. It knows when you walk into the room, and that's a gesture that people would do. They're reaching out your hand and yeah. trying to get past you the remote, and that would give you control of the overhead gantry robot that Cam yep. was talking about having. Does yep. that mean the tallest person in the room always gets to control the TV? Well, yeah. Well, that's not that's, that's not fair. <laughs> that's not, no, that's not necessarily true. You could program it to pass the remote to anybody. Then you could hi- you could create a hierarchy in your house yeah. based on like who the camera sees, and it's like okay, like Simon's in the room, he gets the remote. But then he's once, more once, important once than my, his wife. Yeah, once my no, once my wife walks in, it's like nope. If she holds her hand up, she like overrides. <laughs> I think that 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 would probably be a good like you you could you could make some peace in your house by. I, I don't know about the word peace. Idea for- We've got an idea for a spinoff. <laughs> okay. So you've got this wonderful Cartesian robot system moving above you and all these uh, manipulators and whatnot. You can now break into the security system uh, um, sort of a world. You can have a remote robot that if it doesn't like who you are, it can do things to the person it thinks is violating <laughs> the space. <laughs> so a lot you, of you, offshoots here. <laughs> I know. It's a whole library. Like We can combine it with our previous episode, Brainstorming with Snacks. We could have it deploy drinks and snacks and stuff mm. in the ceiling, too. <laughs> well, and, and, and yeah, if somebody tries to steal your TV, then it just like hits them in the head with a bunch of remotes. <laughs> <laughs> It should probably give a warning first, kind of like the robot. <laughs> Unless they put their hand mode. up and then it provides them with the remotes for the TV they're stealing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, I like it. That's good. Cool. So that's a good segue. We got robotic arms coming from the ceiling. And then now we're going to talk about robotic arms far, far above the ceiling. Yep. Up amongst the stars. Well, actually, that's the misnomer. It's It's much closer than the stars. Yeah, it's lower Earth orbit, yeah. <laughs> and we call it the last frontier, the final frontier. Um, it's the current frontier. How about that? <laughs> yeah, that, that's, I'd that rather sounds... not be the last frontier. <laughs> <laughs> it, the current frontier sounds more like forward-facing. There will be further frontiers, but we haven't got there yet. Mm-hmm. We don't know what they are. Um, cool. Okay. <laughs> we, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be the first of many digressions, don't worry. So, uh, Cam, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Because I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who are listening to us vaguely hint at being a space robot controller and uh, or being part of the robo group and thinking, man, that's pretty awesome. How would I get there? Yeah, like me. That yeah. sounds pretty awesome to me. I am currently thinking that right now, actually. <laughs> um, so why don't you why don't you give us a little like uh, a little background? How did how did you become become the man who controls the robot arm? 
Well, the start is somewhat cliche because a lot of us in this in this career start here. But when I was a child, and uh, I I remember, and still you know have good memories. Is I always aspired to be an astronaut. A lot of us wanted to be astronauts, um, and uh, it was always a dream of mine to work in space. When I was a kid, it was either uh, astronomy. Uh, actually, originally was astronomy. I was a big uh, nerd about planets and space and stars, and also traveling amongst the stars I and mean, the things you see on television. All those things, all those somewhat cliche things, books, whatnot. But I mean, the fact is, they're they're a reality for some of us who are dreamers to want to go beyond. And a lot of these stories inspired us mm-hmm. um, to, to to take that path. So. When I was growing up, you know, I grew up in the Middle East and uh, I, uh, I went to an American school over there and had really great science teachers and math teachers. And one of my science teachers was actually part of the Teacher in Space project program and he uh, he was pretty close to the people that unfortunately perished on Challenger in 86. But hmm. he, I remember him coming back um, and having that assembly where he was just heartbroken. And I remember seeing that, that, that launch on, on the news recorded. Uh, this was 1986, and I remember all my friends the next day were, were confronting me and going, oh, I guess you don't want to be an astronaut anymore. And I was like, of course not. I've always wanted to be, and, and this has nothing to do with that. This is part of the part of the process. So mm. I knew after that moment that, yeah, this is this is my passion, my dream. And I focused on the standards of math and science and uh, streams. I moved to Canada when I was about 15 years old, and uh, went to school, high school, and uh, uh had a bit of a rough transition because anytime you move over, you, you go from being like a, a, a top student and you do this move and it becomes a little bit difficult. And, and mm-hmm. I, it's one of the things I wanted to focus on with you guys is that um, when I went into high school and then started university, I wasn't the top student anymore. I was uh, I was involved with a lot of things eventually, but at the beginning, mm-hmm. I struggled. First year university, like or, or in those days, there was OAC, so grade 13 in Ontario, which I know they don't have anymore, but um, I got through, I was part of the baccalaureate program. I got through that. I wasn't scoring as high as I used to, but you know, I did well enough to get into the programs I wanted to. So University of Toronto is where I ended up uh, in the engineering program. Um, but my first year, <laughs> I actually failed out of some classes. It was it was really a tough transition. So mm-hmm. people who assume that folks who work at the Canadian Space Agency or NASA or one of the, the, the companies like the company that I ended up working for, which is MDA Space Missions, which was you know one of the... The, the big companies that uh, is is the space program in, in Canada. I mean, they used to be called Spar Aerospace, and they're the ones that built the Canada Arm and the shuttle, and then the Canada Arm Two and Dexter, or as we call it, SSRMS and uh, SPDM, and, and the uh, mobile base system that's on the station. So to get to these places, I mean, you don't necessarily have to be top scoring, number one, everything. It really comes down to the things you learned on the path. And once I got through that first year of, of basically falling on the face and learning that I do have to study, this is not <laughs> like you can just coast through the exams. You kind of hunker down, you figure it out. And um, it's uh, it's like one facet of, I think, getting to where I was, 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 was just realizing that, yeah, there are times you will fall and you have to pick yourself up and, and keep moving forward. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's also, like you said, it's, it's really valuable to to sort of reflect on the fact that you don't have to be the top student to to achieve the goal that you have for your for your career like it's interesting because i ended up very close we're not very close but in a similar stream in that i also went to the uft i also ended up interviewing at csa and mda and getting into robotics but also didn't have the best marks i wasn't 
interested in being an astronaut, but um, <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. But you're you're absolutely right. Like if you if you find your passion and find what you're where you want to get to, you can find a way to get there and work through the the, the problems you have without needing to be the best or the top mm-hmm. or the smartest. Well, and, be- and become very yeah, good at something specific without necessarily having to be like academically excelling. Like as, yeah. as long as long as you you've internalized the information you need to do the kinds yeah. of job you want to do. Even things that classically have slants, like classically you would say like mechatronics and robotics and even engineering need a very strong background in math. And I always didn't think I was very good at math. I still don't think I'm all that great at math. Same here, actually. Yeah, math is not one of my favorite subjects, but I mean, it's, it's like to me, university is not learning how to do all those things. I, mean, I learned how to do that. I, I took all those classes and uh, I still have my notes, though some people will tell me I should finally throw them away, but I still have them. <laughs> but uh, I, it wasn't it wasn't really about that. It's it's for me, it was learning how to deal with problems, problem solving and uh, working with teams. So the social elements so, and working with teams isn't just, you know, working with your, your lab partner or working in your, in your design group. It's also the interactive interactions you have with people in what I call real life outside of the classroom. Mm. Um, you are going to make connections there. I mean, I, one of the, the degrees I did after that was at the International Space University. I did a master of science, uh, in space studies and it's a one year program in Europe. And that is completely about learning all the different disciplines related to space, but it's also completely about making connections around the world. And learning mm. to not, I don't want to use the word use them because it sounds like a, a put down, but to, to utilize them, to work mm-hmm. with all these different teams and people. To le- le- leverage interaction with people. Yeah, it's an international program. And so you need to know how to deal with international people. Yeah. So, okay, just can we, can we take a second? You said the International Space University. Yeah, that I wasn't, I wasn't cool. aware that was a thing. That sounds amazing. <laughs> so it's, it's basically a, a, a program that started off, uh, I think it was in the late 80s. It was a the summer session program where they, ha- they would get together um, people from industry to teach uh, a handful of students at these uh, summer terms, it'll be every year, and it'll be, I think I'm not 100 percent sure the term was. I think six weeks to to two months, and it would be an intense crash course of learning about space from people from all different disciplines, so engineering, science, medicine, law. There, there, every discipline, including arts and, uh, wow. and literature. That's cool. So it's a wonderful program for people who want to specialize in space. So for me, when I was facing this, I I had been working at a non-space company. It was my first job out of university at Pratt & Whitney, which is a great company to work for. Um, mm-hmm. it taught me a lot about engineering. But I realized I kind of drifted off from my space uh, uh, path. And um, when you get an offer a job at Pratt & Whitney and you're one of the few in the class of over 100 that gets an opportunity like that, it's hard to say no because you don't know for sure you're going to get that yeah. job down the road. At, at the time, it was SPAR or MD Robotics. So you, you go, and it's it's important to, to have multidisciplines. So... I just finished doing that. I decided that I didn't want to do that anymore. And I had an offer for a, a master's program, a scholarship, because Canadians were very lucky in the sense that we're kind of friends with NASA. We're also friends with ESA, the European Space Agency. So with a scholarship from the European Space Agency, I was able to go to France for their master's program, which was relatively new. I was, a, it was I think, the fifth year that they had this. And you're living in Europe, in Strasbourg, France, uh, for a year, uh, and you get a uh, you get a work placement in those uh, 11 to 12 months. So I worked at NASA Goddard for uh, uh, on the Image uh, Satellite, which is one of the 
uh, middle size uh, re- reconnaissance uh, uh, orbiters uh, or satellites that they ha- had, um, and it introduced me to the NASA world a little bit, and also to working cool. in a government space agency. Yeah, it was a fantastic program. This. I'm super jealous. I applied for that program like two or three <laughs> times, and so did a friend of mine, and neither of us ever got in. <laughs> well, I wasn't even aware just of the keep thing. applying. You'll you'll yeah. eventually get in if you keep applying. That was, that was the other thing. I guess I forgot to mention. Persistence helps a lot. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. One of our one of the American astronauts tried up to seven or eight times before he got accepted. So it does pay off if you keep you know. Mm. And you and every time you apply, you try to improve yourself so that yeah. you come with something more the next time. But mm-hmm. um, but so the International Space University, I think the website is www.iscunet.edu. Um, if you're interested in space and you don't have to necessarily work in space, but if you have an interest, it's really worth looking into. And it's a lot of fun. And I've met some really fantastic friends that I'm still in touch with um, through this program. Yeah, that sounds so amazing. It, yeah. Yeah. It sounds it, almost like it's made up, like it's on the same campus as like the superhero university or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The space university. <laughs> When I was stationed at NASA Johnson, I used to get teased because they were not as familiar with it. But I mean, there are a lot of people at NASA Johnson that went to uh, to to ISU, the Space University. But huh. it does have that sort of a comic booky sound to the name. <laughs> yeah, so. that's that, that's really cool. It is cool. All right, so that 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 was following so Pratt and Whitney, and then this. Is, so the ISU was was a master's program. That's right. So one year master's program, which is another bonus. It's a it's an accredited master's program. It's recognized by Canada and the U.S. because the uh, it's recognized in France, mm. um, and they still have their summer programs. They also have an, I think they might have an MBA program, but you should really look that up. Another. Oh man, I want a space they, they MBA. Of <laughs> Master of space business. <laughs> I'm not 100 percent sure if that one's still available, but if you go to that website, all the info is there. I'm gonna so, have to check so, yeah, that so out. Yeah. One year in uh, in Europe, which is a wonderful year, and three months of that was at uh, in Washington D.C., uh, where Goddard is, or it's near. Mm. And then while I was stationed at uh, ISU, or while I was at school at ISU, I started reconnecting with my uh, uh, with the company I had applied to before I had left, uh, which was MDA Space Missions, which is. At the time, one of the board of trustees was a, a, a member of – sorry, one of the board of trustees of ISU was a member of NDA. And through those connections, which is where the term Space Mafia came from, it was, I think, in Forbes magazine or one of the magazines in the in the 90s that termed that, uh, that uh, phrase for people who are connected <laughs> through ISU. So nice. I followed through that, uh, through that um, path and um, – had a number of interviews and uh, I was very fortunate to to make the right connections and was hired in uh, 2000 to work at MDA Space Missions. Wow. And from that time until about uh, 2011, I was working in the Space Station Robotics uh, System, uh, so the, the Mobile Servicing System, which is the official name, the MSS, which you guys know as Canaram 2, Dexter, and the uh, Mobile uh, Base System. Mm-hmm. So... I'm at MDA. I'm trying to specialize. As you said, you got to find your niche. So my niche was like, I'm not a controls engineer. I'm not a, a structural engineer, but I was definitely, my degree was mechanical, but I focused on sort of operations engineering and I worked on uh, spacewalk procedures. So that was the area that I was most interested in at the time because all this hardware has to be put into space and you have to come up with ways to deploy this hardware or to, mm-hmm. to take it away from the space shuttle payload bay where it comes up and then put it together. Like the Canarm 2 uh, it was actually not in the, its long 17 meter configuration. It was folded over so it would fit in the payload bay of the space shuttle. And it was quite an engineering feat. I was quite impressed when I saw that. And if you guys ever, you know, I get a chance to look it up online, you'll see pictures of it folded up. And 
in I think 2001, Chris Hadfield and Scott Perzinski were the astronauts that uh, were the spacewalkers or the EVA crew members, extravehicular activity crew members that deployed the uh, the counterarm too. And it's a really neat video. I'm pretty sure you can mm. find it on uh, on That's super uh, cool. on YouTube. I think it was STS 100. As a as a small side note, I was just wondering. I have, I have friends who work at MDA, and they said that, uh, or what I've heard is that. Walking past the glass hangar where they service the Canada arm is super cool. And then eventually it sort of becomes a day-to-day mundane thing. Does it become mundane? Because it seems super cool. Regrettably, like anything, um, <laughs> when you start working on something continuously, you do become used to it. I mean, my first day at NASA Johnson Space Center um, after I became a, a Canadian Space Agency flight controller, when I was deployed down there for my training, that first day that I was down there, I almost broke into tears when my uh, escort pushed me, literally pushed me through this door. I was in the Apollo flight control room, which was one of the old shuttle rooms that they had refit back to the original Apollo flight control room. That was a dream for me. That's, that's I, awesome. I had read about these rooms. I had read about these books. I read about these rooms in these books, like the books that Chris uh, Chris Craft and uh, uh, Gene Kranz and different astronauts had written and it's it's amazing when you actually are there it, it, I had this like the goosebumps on my body I mean, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps right now I'm looking at my arms and it's, <laughs> it's still a, it's still a it's still a magical place but if, over time you kind of get used to being there and the actual mission control room or the flight control room as we call it that's that's one of the rooms that I don't work in directly because I'm still working on my certifications to become a robo because there are three positions in the flight controller community. I'm, I'm in the support room where we actually send the commands and move the arms and things like that. But when you go to the flight control room, like the, the room that you see on NASA TV, it's just amazing when you just walk in there and you can hear the buzz and the vibe of the room. Um, but even that, after a while, might get a little bit more mundane because if you're always working in there. But for yeah. me, because I have a bit of a romantic side to my <laughs> Um, impression of space it's still kind of magical and in the the multi-purpose support room we have here which is called the remote multi-purpose support room, which is the room we have at the canadian space agency where we send the commands and uh, support the operations um this room has a nice big board with the views of a downlink from space which is an awesome phrase yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the downlink yeah. from space <laughs> and honestly guys that is one of the things that i put up there even when i'm working on the weekends doing like designing operations for future missions i have that view from space and i look at it and i'm like my god i'm so lucky I, i'm so lucky to have this view yeah you have like a little ground plot of like oh there's uh the like just yesterday we're flying over uh montreal where i'm stationed this is where the Canadian space is i'm like oh there's montreal there it goes and it's like underneath <laughs> the so clouds cool. of course but it's not just the place where you keep your keyboard and your coffee cup. It's it's a, it's a little bit more exactly. special than that. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, we, the thing is, we all have access to this video. You can see this stuff online these days. We just take it for granted. Space has become, unfortunately, somewhat something that people don't get as excited about as they used to. And that's a bit heartbreaking because these are the stepping stones. This station, a lot of people ask, why are we doing this? This station has been up there since 99 when the two, first two pieces were put together. We've had crew members on it since the early days. It's been over 15 years now. This platform is a stepping stone. I mean, the, the engineering that we've learned at, in Canada for building this robotic system, the engineering learned by the Americans for all their different systems, the power systems, the life support systems, the cooling systems, the structural systems, the engineers in Japan that built the Japanese module, which is the largest module on the station, the engineers in Russia that built the Russian segment of their propulsion systems, 
the scientists and engineers that put all the experiments together and put it on this platform. And these scientists are from all over the world. They're not limited to just the partners. People have, can apply to have their experiments go on the station. Even children with these small startup little experiments. Because the part of this station is not just doing the, the R&D, but it's also to inspire people. I mean, I'm still inspired. I mean, I, I'm getting yeah. goosebumps just thinking about this. <laughs> it's, it, this is what it's about. I mean, this is... This platform is a phenomenal project with thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. When you think about all the companies that support the, mm-hmm. the process of putting this together, this thing has been flying since 1999. It's been orbiting about 400 kilometers, you know, give or take the, the altitude up and down that we get. Um, it's been flying mm-hmm. up there continuously since that time. And it's a platform for so much R&D and science and engineering just the controls that we do like we we're talking about let's say the robotic system which is what my specialty is when we originally built this robot it was being used only by crew members only by astronauts on board nowadays it's the ground control flight controllers us we do we do the the, the maneuvers in space with a robot 90 plus percent of the robotics is done by ground flight, uh, ground control flight control operators like myself and my colleagues in, in, in here over here at csa and at nasa johnson mm-hmm. um this technology was developed over the lifetime of this arm. The arm was up there since 2001, the other robots a little bit later, but this R&D that was done by the people in the flight control team, our, my, my colleagues and the engineers at the, uh, at the at MDA, as well as the support personnel here at the Canadian Space Agency, this was all reviewed and vetted and, and improved upon so that we've come to a place where, and this is what I tell kids when I meet them in schools, is that you don't have to be an astronaut to be in space anymore. Mm-hmm. A flight controller on the ground, a Canadian flight controller. I, mean, I know how lucky I am because there's only a few of us that are part of this, this CX2 robotics team at NASA. But you can find a job in this group. If you if your application of the astronaut program doesn't go through, then don't give up. There's still so much more you can do in space. And Yeah, well, the, the, you, you go to work every day in space. It's just that yeah. you're, you're, do, you're doing it remotely. I go to work in space. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I do it remotely. And, and some of the things that we can do, when you have that Dexter robot, the SPDM, the Special Purpose Dexter's Manager, which everybody calls Dexter. And these, by the way, for people who are listening, if you don't have the website up, just bring up a $5 bill. We're on the back of the $5 bill now. So you can see all these robots <laughs> there. It looks like that. <laughs> so Dexter, when it's holding its one of its two arms out and doing um, servicing missions, where we do, like, for example, we recently were switching out some switch control boxes on the station. It's doing millimeter precision maneuvers. Now, imagine this. You've got the Canada Arm 2, which is about 17 meters. It's holding the top end of Dexter. Add another three or so meters for the body, so let's say halfway down. Then you've got another arm, which is, you know, I'm just guessing here. It's like uh, at about three meters or one to three meters, depending on whatever configuration it is. So you're reaching out from that platform that's on the truss, the, the rail structure on the space station where we can go back and forth on the mobile base system, which is also the Canadian component. And it's on an American thing called the mobile transporter, which is the cart that can run along. So we've got this thing out on one end of the station. It's reaching over. It's holding this, so 17 meters plus another number of meters, and this this arm with a tool at the end of it. And it's we're doing, we're commanding millimeter maneuvers. I mean, that blows my mind. And it's all being done from the ground, from the computer system, either in Houston or up here at CSA uh, in Montreal. And then, you know, we have, we're sending commands. We're sending commands. It's like, yeah. you know, we have three of us. There's the robo who's leading. There's the systems officer who's sending the commands and the task officers who's monitoring all the clearances and 
the person that helped design the maneuvers. And we're like, so what do you think? Should we move maybe a few millimeters to the in plus Y? Maybe we'll go plus X a little bit. It's it's just millimeters <laughs> motions. So you're like you're millimeter jogging with a lot of forethought and planning. It's not sort of like somebody is holding a joystick and just kind of driving this thing around. And <laughs> you're, not, you're not flailing an arm around in space. The only joysticks are on board, and the astronauts use the joysticks in what's called a manual mode, where they can fly it like as much as a game uh, analogy, if you want. That's used primarily for two of the major operations that the crew are responsible for. So you have heard of spacewalks, obviously. So sometimes when mm-hmm. there's an astronaut on the end of the arm, the control, the controls are being uh, manipulated by an astronaut on the space station in one of the two control stations, which we call the robotic workstations, the RWSs. One of them is in the cupola, which is that really cool window of uh, facility where a lot of the pictures of the state of the Earth going by at high speed or uh, the time lapse photos are taken. We have a control mm-hmm. sta- station there, but we also have a control station in the lab module where the original control stations were before the cupola went up there. Because you have to remember, the space station was built incrementally, one shuttle right. payload mm-hmm. at a time or Russian launch at a time. So piece by piece, we're now at assembly complete. So it's it's now you have the one control uh, station in that cupola, which is the cool place to go where you have a nice view below the station. So, <laughs> so the joysticks are there for the spacewalks, but or what we just actually did today, for example, we had a, a free flyer release or a free flyer capture. So a free flyer is a visiting vehicle. It's a vehicle that comes to the station that does not have the ability to dock to the station. Uh, so Russian vehicles, like Soyuz's and Progress vehicles, can fly and autonomously or with uh, cosmonaut control can dock to the, spa- to the, to the space station. These uh, other vehicles which are all free flyers. You may have heard of the Dragon by SpaceX yeah. or the Cygnus by, I think it's Orbital, and then there's the H2 transfer vehicle, the HTV by the Japanese, or JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency. These vehicles come... They rendezvous to the space station, and then they go with what's called a, a free, like a, let's say a hover mode. And the astronaut then has a limited number of time to fly in the, the counterarm to go to the grappling point or the interface point where we can grab. And then they trigger on the joystick to, to, to grab, let's say in quotes, to capture that free flyer. Mm-hmm. Once they've captured it, their job is pretty much done. Then we take over from the ground and we maneuver this large payload and install it on the docking port on the uh, the uh, space station. Why are those operations done in the air and not on the ground? Like, what is the what's the difference in in is it is, is it, it like reaction view angles or, or yeah? Why are the astronauts not doing it instead of like why are well, we doing yeah, like, why, why is there why differentiation two, between some uh, operations that are done on the ground and some that are done by astronauts? Okay, so those two operations require uh, the hand controllers or the joysticks to be uh, used in order to manipulate the arm. The other operations are, are what we call auto-sequence commands. So these are trajectories or maneuvers that have been planned by people like myself, the mission designers on the ground, which is actually what I was doing before I came to do this interview with you guys. I'm designing a future mission. So I've, I know exactly how the arm is going to move. I know exactly where it's going to go. And I plan the joint angles so that I don't hit anything and I don't go into any zones I'm not supposed to go to. So those are all done by auto sequences, which means that it allows us to use uh, ground commands. Nowadays, though, we have the ability to do um, adjustments. So if we're going to be installing something and it looks like we're slightly off, because you know any engineering uh, uh, piece of hardware, you have stack ups and you have thermal effects and things kind of move a little bit, even though they're solid and rigid, they still move a little bit. So we need to adjust a little bit. So we have tools that will tell the arm, okay, I want you to go. I mean, we're going to be using uh, uh, an X Y Z 
uh, pitch yaw roll orientation sort of a, a, a grid. So we can say we need to move a few centimeters in, in plus y, a few centimeters in minus z or minus z if you're an American. And then you can send these commands as you look at the, the, the camera and say, yeah, we need a bit of this much x, this much z, this much y, and maybe a little bit of pitch. And then it sends it. So it's an, it's a real-time build auto-sequence command that uh, allows us to adjust the position. But we don't have the joysticks because there is still a time delay between mm. the ground mm-hmm. and the spacecraft. So maybe one and a half to three seconds, depending on the infrastructure logistics and so, so on. Is, so is the, the, the jobs that are done by the astronauts, uh, the jobs done by astronauts are the ones that are not as deterministic. Like they need to be reacting. You don't know where the where things are going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, not not exactly because oh, okay. astronauts also need to be. You know, we every procedure an astronaut uses has been vetted by us on the ground. We're telling uh-huh. them exactly where they need to go. When they're doing the free flyer portion, or when they're doing the portion where the astronauts on the end of the arm, we're in a zone. We're like, okay, I'm the mission designer. I need to get astronaut uh, Joe Blow uh, to <laughs> position X Y Z pitch our role. And in that space, I need to make sure that he or she uh, inside the station can move the hand controller, the joysticks, in, a, in some uh, amount of space so they can adjust their position without me risking any contact by the arm. And remember, it's not just the tip of the arm, but remember, there's also the other parts of the arm, the, big, the, the two big booms and the elbows. So you don't want to hit something else while they're focusing so much on the uh, where the astronaut is. Because the astronaut's mm. saying, hey... Uh, can you move me forward in 50 centimeters? So while, you know, they're doing the 50 centimeters, the arm might be doing something that they may have not spotted. But because of good training, the astronauts have clearance view cameras and we're also on the ground watching over their shoulders. So mm-hmm. there's, mm-hmm. it's almost impossible for them to make a mistake. They're, this, the, the control they're doing with the joystick is similar to the kinds of adjustments that you're doing on the ground, but they're doing it in slightly more real time. The gross motor control of the arm is still being done the same sort of like planned trajectories in that that you were talking about. Yeah, the, the major trajectories, the auto sequences as we're calling them, they still do auto sequences as well. Mm. They get to the zone where they need to use the joysticks, that's when they sort of take over. But when they're doing a crew mm-hmm. procedure, we let them do the whole procedure. Understand this though, they can do any procedure that we have on the ground, they can do those procedures. The reason that they're not doing them anymore, the reason that they have now come down to, let's say, let's, I'm just making a number up when I say 10% of the operations. The reason we want them to not worry about the other operations are that we can do them on the ground. This frees them up for doing science, which is the whole point of the spacecraft. Originally, they were building the space station. There was less science, but now we're fully assembled. We call it assembly complete. Mm. They're doing the science and also the maintenance on the space station because mm-hmm. the station is getting older and Part of the astronaut's job is to make sure that, you know, everything's running smoothly and if there's any issues that they need to address, they can be focusing on that instead of worrying about moving <laughs> the payload that they just captured and installing it because we can take care of that from the ground. Mm-hmm. So well, it's, uh, it's, cool. it's, yeah, it's a, it's a way of sharing the responsibilities and making sure that the main goal of the spacecraft, the space station, is to be a platform for science and research. And also... Mm-hmm a platform to see how we are going to be behaving in space for long-term missions. So, for example, recently we had Scott Kelly, the NASA astronaut, who was there for almost a year. So these are all experiments in science and research, but it's not just scientific projects that are people coming up with ideas on the ground, but these are also big ideas that are for the longer-duration missions when we start venturing out of low-Earth orbit. Because, honestly, since the Apollo era, since the moon missions, we still haven't really left, like human beings have not left low earth orbit so mm-hmm. that's the next big step to get away from low earth orbit and start yeah. venturing out and uh 
and really exploring. And this is the whole point of this. That yeah, sort of touches on something that you mentioned earlier that I wanted to to circle back around to, which is how do you, as someone who who quote unquote works in space or like is a is a space engineer, how do you view the the prospect of increasing commercialization of space and um, almost commoditization of space? as it stands now and as it seems to be heading in the future where the thing to do if you're a billionaire is start a space company and go and <laughs> make your money off world. Well, it's inspiring to be honest. I mean, I, my first time when I heard about commercialization of space, because I was so used to the old school NASA as the big space program and the CSA, the Canadian space agency and so on. And so I, I realized after, you know, after going to ISU space university, after talking to my colleagues at NASA that it's actually a good thing. It's 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 basically allowing um, more. I mean, the way I see it is, you have all these companies with their creativity able to now participate, as well as bringing uh, funds that are not just purely public funds, not purely tax dollars, and you have companies that are able to work in this realm. And then you have to also remember the plan is no longer the limit, the limiting factor. We're starting to move out. I mean, we've got satellites in geosynchronous orbit. We've had them for a while, but Eventually, in the in the near the the middle to near the long term future, we're moving out of space. So it completely makes sense to have commercialization. Mm-hmm. The beauty of it, though, right now is that they're working hand in hand. So, like for example, NASA and let's use SpaceX as one example because everybody seems to be excited about SpaceX and you know, Elon Musk, who I could call the Howard Hughes of the modern era or the Tony Stark <laughs> of the modern era, depending on your perspective. Mm-hmm. But he has, has a team of people that are worked very hard and they're pushing the boundaries. And, and that's exciting. To those of us who work in the government programs, that's also really exciting because we're getting to work with these people um, and developing these technologies. So the free flyer technologies develop a lot of new software uh, versions of our control software for the robots in order to be able to do these types of captures. So having commercial entities is not a bad thing. I think it's important. I think it expands out the research that they're gaining from these experiences are being applied to their engineering practices. They're able to apply these things for a company that's got different disciplines, like, for example, as we said, SpaceX, who has Tesla and whatnot. A lot of this skill can be now sort of, it'll be flowing out into the, into the commercial industry, commercial world. A lot of space industry is, is, uh, is high reliability and so on and so forth. And commercialization allows you to bring these things a little bit more attainable. You want to make something that doesn't cost so high that it's not attainable by the, the mm-hmm. common world. So it's bringing the costs down. Mm-hmm. It's allowing creativity. It's inspiring people on both sides of the fence, government as well as uh, industry. So. I think it's the right way. I think it's it's gonna it's obviously learning as it's going along, and it'll it's a dynamic uh, process. And uh, and for, and let me give you another quick example about um, we were talking about SpaceX. So the mission that I'm working on uh, is a payload that's called the International Docking Adapter, which was being originally launched on SpaceX Seven. SpaceX Seven unfortunately had a launch failure, and uh, it was a catastrophic launch failure. It was destroyed. And therefore, this company, who had never had such a big visible um, incident, had to face this sort of a, what do we do? How do we fix this? How do we move forward? So this was a major step for them in, in the, as a learning process. And they, you know, just recently launched SpaceX 8 and uh, installed that beam payload, the Bigelow expandable module. So they recovered yeah. from that explosion and solved their problems and got back into space. And my mission, SpaceX 9, is the next one that's going to be going up uh, sometime in July, hopefully. 
and uh, my payload, the replacement for the IDA, the International Docking Adapter, that's going to be on that vehicle. So I'm excited about that, and uh, it's all part of the learning process. Cool. Yeah. You know, Elon's company had to learn how to deal with this. So you uh, you said you're talking about your mission. Um, let's let's talk about what your day to day is because I, I think I imagined far more sort of like joysticks and camera feedback and whatnot. And so it sounds like there's a, <laughs> a, a lot of your day is just is is planning like all the minutia of how a, uh, a mission is going to work through. Can you sort of tell us what what a day looks like for you? Well, there's three versions of my day. So let me start with what I call the real-time version, which is when I'm on the flight controller on console. So mm-hmm. I'm doing some operations. Somebody else may have written a procedure. I wrote a procedure, and a team of uh, a number of people, uh, certified flight controllers, have reviewed the procedure. So I'm preparing for that operation. Then I'm on console. I'm setting up my telemetry displays, all the tools I use to support the operations. There's a team of three of us. So there's the MSS being all servicing system, the MSS task officer, which is what I am. There's the MSS systems officer, and then there's a robo in the front room. The three of us are responsible for executing these operations safely and successfully. So on console, I'm monitoring the system. I'm watching the, uh, the, the operation in space. I'm watching it with respect to camera views as well as robotic, uh, uh, we have a robotic tool that uh, takes telemetry from space and has high fidelity models of the space station and the robot and all the moving elements mm-hmm. on the spacecraft that are moving. I'm watching this in parallel to watching the downlink TV uh, views from space just to make sure that this procedure is executed uh, nominally. And if there are any problems, then my job is to figure out how to get around this problem with the systems officer doing the technical system side and me doing the trajectory side, working on how do I move the arm so that I can recover from this problem? Or how do we get to an unplanned position because we had an issue that we were not expecting? So we quickly in real time can replan it. So normally things are going smoothly, but there are times where we have to replan things. And this is where training, uh, where we do simulations, where we practice real-time operations, that's where it comes very, very handy. So in simulations, we're breaking things all the time. And it's my job to learn to recover from these breaks as fast as possible, How but as safely as possible as well. Wow! Oh, you have no idea. Our, our, <laughs> our CTOs or the the I think they're called the the, the 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 chief training officers. The they can be really creative in how they can break the space station. So. <laughs> how to break the space station? And there aren't. It's just we're only one system, so there's multiple systems. So we're all these simulations are happening all the same. We're all working together. So one of the other systems might break; it'll have an impact on me, or my system might break and have an impact on mm-hmm. them. So, mm-hmm. so that's the simulation role. So so that's real time and simulation. So what I call console work. Um, the non real time phases are twofold. One is what I'm doing currently, which is mission design, because I'm a task officer. We are responsible for coming up with. With the operation. So I'm told, yeah, SpaceX 9 is launching with a replacement international docking adapter. It's in the trunk of the SpaceX Dragon. Hey, Cam, you need to figure out how to get that out of there and install it on the front of the space station. So I'm like, okay, so let's see. There's all this space. There are all these zones I can't go in. I have all these robots I can use. So it's quite the blank board. And it's this is where I call the fun part of the job where you get really creative. So you're basically using that that uh, high fidelity tool that I mentioned earlier, which is called the robotic planning system. And these are tools that were developed from the shuttle era when they were used with the with a shuttle robotics. So we've been upgrading them since then. And the the the, the NASA engineers are the ones that manage these tools. So because we're part of the the, the flight controllers are a part of the, the NASA robotics group, we have access to these tools. 
So I'm sitting there staring at this thing and using this tool to basically come up with automatic sequence trajectories on how to clear the structure of the lab module, how to clear the structure of the, the Japanese module, how to not, not hit a zone where this laser system is maybe operating while I'm doing robotics because you don't want to interrupt someone else's science. So mm. what looks like empty space is not really empty. There's a lot of zones you have to keep track of and ways of maneuvering an arm. And this is a seven-joint arm, so there's a lot of ways of moving seven degrees of freedom to get this yeah. payload. And then don't forget, not only am I taking this payload, but, oh, I was just told, yeah, this is the docking adapter that has to be grabbed by the Dexter robot. So now I'm holding Dexter, and I'm holding uh, <laughs> it, it in the trunk, pulling out this payload, and then to make it even more exciting, because this has never been done before, we're installing this thing as far as we can on the front of the station, but we're actually handing it off to spacewalkers. We've never used Dexter oh, wow. to do something like that. So this wow. is kind of, for me, this is quite exciting. So <laughs> we're very proud We're very proud of robotics. We're going to try to install this thing as far as possible before we have to let them tether it down and then release it because mm. they have to tether it down so they can hook up the cables to it and power it up so that they can mechanically engage the front of the station. So yeah. for us, it's quite a fun project because not only are we now dealing with the Dragon uh, SpaceX folks, we're also now dealing with the spacewalk team in Houston, the EVA, extravehicular activity team. And for me, that's fantastic because I get to work with the EVA task officer. So MS's task officer talking to the EVA task officer, making sure that we're on the same page. You know, so not only am I installing this thing, but then he's asking me, hey, Cam, can you supply some camera views? Because we don't have any cameras in the front of the station. We can't really see the, uh, the, the spacewalk dudes. I'm like, sure, I can get views of the spacewalk dudes, no problem. So now I have to change my <laughs> robot position so I can look at these spacewalkers. Huh. Um, and, and I say dudes only because right now the two spacecrafts are dudes, but it could be dudettes as well. So it's, uh, <laughs> because remember, this was supposed to happen in SpaceX 7, and this spacewalk has now been delayed to ho- hopefully in, in August or whenever they actually do the spacewalk. But it'll, first, we got to get the vehicle up there. Then I got to get the thing out of there and install it as far as uh, get it ready to install. And once I've got this thing down in the front of the station, then the spacewalkers can take over and then we can release it and then move back and give them some camera views. So cool. this whole interaction is the fun part of the job. The whole the whole creativity of the trajectories, of the the rules that I have to apply, mm-hmm. the things that, you know, the camera views, the working with my robo in charge of this mission, working with the EVA team, the EVA lead as well as the EVA task officer working with a flight director who is running this mission. And I've had to work with multiple flight directors because the mission kind of slipped down the timeline. Yeah. <laughs> it's all the it's all the human interactions. It's, what I love about this job is the human interactions. I mean, yeah, I work with robots in space. That's phenomenal. I love that too. But <laughs> working, working with these people that I used to read about, like the, the people who have now retired, these people who were flight directors and flight controllers, and it sort of hits me in the face. Holy crap, I'm one of these guys now. This yeah. is my job. And you're part. You're part of this big thing that's been ongoing since since the, uh, well, the, the ISS since the '90s, but the whole project since the beginning of like since the middle of this last century. Yeah. Exactly. It's part of a. It's 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 a it's a journey. That's I've always amazing. told my my younger friends that this is a journey, and we need to take heed of this journey. We are we're looking at the minutia sometimes. There are days when I want to punch myself in the face because I made a mistake that I didn't see earlier in the day and I have to redo something. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are times when this job can be really challenging and and difficult in that sense. Things that you might miss, but every time you make that mistake, the next time you're not going to make that mistake. And part of the flight controller's principle is to be always improving yourself and bettering yourself. Mm. Um, And as flight controllers, we have these these, uh, uh, values and rules that have been handed down from the early days. And 
it's important. I mean, a lot of people might think that we don't, you know, oh, this is just like Hollywood. No, this is actually real. This is people's lives are at stake. There are risks that are being taken, um, risks that are, I think, worth to be taken because, as mm. I said, we have to move forward. We can't just stagnate and, and, and go nowhere. This is, yeah. this is part of humanity's future. We have to do this. So This is the current frontier, as you said. <laughs> yeah. it, is, it is one of the, the biggest frontiers. So that's the mission design side of my job. And as I said in that whole thing about improving oneself, I'm the uh, an MSS task officer. I've also now got I'm working on my systems certification. So a lot of this job is studying. It's like being back in school. <laughs> one of my one of the very talented flight controllers that was my mentor. Um, she uh, told me that getting um, getting a uh, a robo certification is like getting a PhD because it takes about five years from from when you start from MSS task. And work your way up. And in, in parallel to these, there are other certifications as well that the NASA folks, as well as like one of the other certs that I would have up here is teaching astronauts how to use the robotic system or teaching flight controllers. So not only mm-hmm. are we learning about the system, we're also learning how to teach about the system, which is one of the best ways to learn. Mm-hmm. When you have to teach, you really start absorbing these things. So teaching is a very powerful thing. So, so yeah, so the other big chunk of time is learning and, and taking tests and studying yeah. and doing practicals and, then you're doing, then you take all this knowledge and you're doing those simulations I mentioned. And then, you know, you're sitting there, you're this, I'm, so I'm in the simulation, I'll get a systems officer because I've already got my tasks right. And I'll be waiting, I, I see an error and I'm like, uh oh. And your robo is like, <laughs> all right, systems. And I'm like, uh, I get like copy robot. I see the, I see the uh, anomaly in the log. Um, give me a few minutes to look into it. So you're saying that calmly, but in your head, you're like, oh man, oh man, I got to bring this out. <laughs> so, the trick is to stay calm, right? The trick is to handle the stress, to make sure that you don't lose sight of the end goal, to make sure that you ask for help when you need it, <laughs> and use the tools in front of you. And by simulating these crazy anomalies that sometimes are thrown at you that hopefully will never happen, you're handling the stress like it's the real thing, mm-hmm. as well as a, you're learning how to manage communication, passing the info up, because your robo has to summarize all this to a flight director who is the god of space operations. He or she <laughs> is the one in charge. And a flight director is not going to be waiting around to be hummed and hawed. He or she mm. wants the information summarized. And then if it involves the crew especially, you need to make sure that it's something that the Capcom or the what used to be called the capsule communicator, the person that speaks to the astronauts, they need to be able to communicate this. So the robo has to get this information packaged really well and as well as a uh, a forward plan. It's what we call as like failure impacts workaround. That's how we package the information. So mm-hmm. identify the failure. What are the impacts of the failure? And then workaround. In the old days when I was in, it was a uh, support engineer for MDA station that's at the Canadian Space Agency. I was more interested in like, hey, why, why did this thing happen and how do I fix it? One of the big things I had to learn when I transitioned from being an engineering support lead for MDA, uh, I had to learn to become a flight controller. And one of the big things was, all right, Cam, you don't have to worry about why it's uh, how to fix it. You just need to know enough about the why so you can figure out what to do to get around it and mm-hmm. complete the operations. Because everything in space is a big clock. You're like, you know, you have limited time to do things. You've got resources that are being used. The satellites that all the commands are being sent are all in geosynchronous order. They 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 all have to be used by different uh, teams. You need to make sure that you're, you know, you're within your time limit that they've established for your operation. And, and all these things are of course flexible, but you know, you need to be concise. Get it's always there. Up to your mm-hmm. robo. Yeah. Yeah. So it's being, you know, being efficient is very important in space operations. Cool. So, yeah. uh, 
So going forward, uh, it sounds like, so the being a robo, that's sort of being the top of the, of the, this is, this is the position that you are, are reaching for. That's next in your journey. The, 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 uh, yeah, it's the future for you. It's hopefully. the ultimate, it's the ultimate systems officer and then, uh, possibly robo and hopefully robo, depending on if I, you know, it, it all comes down to like other things you want to do. But yeah, ultimately robo yeah. is the, is the, uh, the, the the person on the front, the the, t- mm-hmm. the top of the pyramid. So that's cool. That'd be awesome. Plus, you get to call yourself Robo. <laughs> you get to call yourself Robo. Yeah. I am yeah. the Robo. Yeah. Like a business card that says like Chief Robo or something. <laughs> I don't think I want to be Chief Robo, but yeah, I'm sure you could really want one. <laughs> that's awesome. It's uh, I think this is probably we're going to wrap up, but I think that's I, I I had a I'm not sure I had like a really good idea in my head of like how those systems were controlled and how mm-hmm. much like pre-planning uh, goes into knowing, like you know exactly where things are going to go at any given time. And uh, Absolutely. It, gives, it gives me a good uh, – I, I wish that they had, that, that had been made more clear in courses where they're talking about those kinds of like deterministic robotic systems, um, how important it is to know – what the robot's doing and where it is in space for this kind of job. Not only that, but it's also interesting because it's basically like to a certain extent, an extreme example of some things that are tenets of engineering, like forethought and planning and execution and working Mm -hmm. through problems. And like, it's sort of like an ultimate example of what a lot of engineering, especially robotics is, is these scenarios. No, that's really, really cool. I'm uh, as well. It's it's another thing you mentioned is that you also, I mean, you, you may have heard the expression, uh, Hope for the best, but plan for the worst. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, there are a lot of procedures that I've written that'll hopefully never get used because I need to get this thing installed, sure, or I need to help a spacewalker, sure. But what if this happens? What if that happens? So yeah. you have all these mm-hmm. contingency procedures. So as you were saying in your in your statement just earlier, there's a lot of planning, and not just for the for the nominal operation, but also for the contingency operations. But in space, yeah. you always always need to plan for the worst because. When it happens, you want to say, "I got it, flight. I got the procedure right here. Um, yeah. It's ready I got to go. We yeah. need to go to." And <laughs> that is one. that is the yeah. key tenet of being a good flight controller. You're ready yeah. for things going wrong. It's it's a or even if you thing. aren't ready, like even if something goes wrong that you hadn't forethought or planned out, you have a procedure to follow to come up with a solution on the fly. Like you have, it's not just sort of exactly. like, "Well, we're done." Like yeah. you you have a process you can go through to figure out a way to get around it. Yeah, or a team of people who can think on their feet and come up with a solution while on console and have a backup team ready and standby what we call it mm-hmm. team four and mm. uh it's yeah and it's all about working together it's a it's a team project it really is it's a anybody who does not want to work with people then you are not being in space for robotics because <laughs> this job you rely on your colleagues you yeah. really need to learn you need to know how to trust them you need to also cross-check them you can't just blindly trust somebody so there's huh. a lot of checking so mm. a lot of the number of human hours to do a simple procedure is is astounding when you really start measuring it. It's the amount of vetting, the amount of coordination, the amount of training. Because don't forget, mm. you have to teach the astronauts how to use the robot. You have to teach the flight controller how to do it. There are so many people. Just when you when you hear you know because Chris Hatfield was so popular. When you heard Chris Hatfield, you know, talking in the old days, or when we have our next big Canadian astronaut, David Saint Jacques, uh, and hopefully after Jeremy Hansen going up. When you hear these Canadians doing these operations, whether it's robotics or or maintenance or spacewalks, you have to remember there are thousands upon thousands of people and human hours that have been supporting these people. They're yeah. the face yeah. of all of us. And and the good astronauts of today realize that. And they're really wonderful <laughs> about 
giving us credit uh, because they know without the flight control team, without the engineers, without the the person who designs that little diode that goes into the car, that goes into the camera, the, the, who works in some company, mm-hmm. you know, so remote. From it, these people are all part of this massive project. All the engineers, not just us in NASA or at, at CSA that are in the front rooms, but all these people, all these engineers yeah. and, and teachers and, and people are part of this grand, grand project. This is a really grand project with a number of people that are involved. And it's it's sometimes important for me when I pull out a $5 bill, I'm like, you have no idea how many people are part of this $5 yeah. bill right here. When you see that picture. No, it's, 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 it's a grand, a grand unifying, grand unifying project for the whole. It is international. Uh, it's absolutely. a worldwide grand. It is well, international. Amazing. It's worldwide. Yeah. All right. Um, that's been great. I'm, I, I'm sure that we've, uh, this has been one of the most, uh, inspiring episodes out oh, there yeah. in terms of going, uh, <laughs> I'm sure people listening to this are going to want to uh, want to go to. I, I for one want to go to International Space University now. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, team. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's pull together and wrap this up. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, first, we got to thank Kwanzer. Kwanzer, thank you so much for sponsoring our podcast uh, today. At Kwanzer, I learned about gain scheduling, which is where you change the way your system responds depending on the situation it's in. So it's used a lot in aerospace. Uh, if you're, you'll change the way your like control surfaces react depending on like the density of the air, uh, or you'll change the way your engine reacts depending on um, like fuel conditions or weather conditions, things like that. Cool. So you'll have a, a single controller with multiple gains. Yeah, it's pretty cool. All right. Thanks, um, Kwanzer. Yeah, Kwanzer. Thanks for sponsoring us and keeping us on the air. The on, <laughs> on the internet. Yeah. Um, Keeping us from spending too much of our own money. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, and I want to follow that up with, we, it's been a while since you had a fun fact. It's time for the week. I thought this would be good for space. Uh, in space, they got to like make sure you have like the right collection, like the right mixture of gases that you can breathe. Um, I learned the other day that you can suffocate in pure nitrogen, but you won't feel like you're suffocating. Because the sensation of suffocation, like the sensation of not being able to breathe and having like choking comes from having too much CO2, not a lack of oxygen. So if you walk into a space that's pure nitrogen, you don't choke because you're not – your body can still expel CO2, but you don't get oxygen. So you just get tired and then fall down and die. That's terrifying. I know. Isn't it? It's really weird. Anyway. (laughs) So yeah, you, if if you ever if you were like you walk into a room and you suddenly feel really tired, you might just be like being suffocated with nitrogen. That's that's not a fun fact. That's, that's <laughs> I know it's the opposite of a fun <laughs> fact. A, Simon's terrifying a, fact of the week. Fact. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um. So uh, you want to talk socials? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So we are on the intertubes at howdoyou.engineer, mm-hmm. and you can also email us. Um, I just changed the addresses, but we still have feedback at howdoyou.engineer. Okay. Um, and our social Facebook and Twitter is at howdoyoueng. And you can find us on Reddit at slash r slash howdoyoueng. And you can listen to us on Geek Life Radio Mondays at 7 p.m. Did I get right this time? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Geek Life Radio. All right. Thank you, Cam, so much for coming to join Thanks us lot, Cam. and oh calling goodness. in because this has Wait. been really, really cool. Just the coolest. Thank yeah. you for inviting me. It's, it's a real honor and I really am happy you guys have an interest in this. It's, it really means a lot to me. So thank you so much for allowing me to do this. Yeah. Well, it only took a little bit of cutting through red tape with the Canadian government. To, uh, <laughs> they they now own our podcast. So thank you for the Canadian <laughs> government. for <laughs> Today's podcast is brought to you by the CSA. <laughs> this was brought to you by Gwanzer. Thanks, Gwanzer.